0: Chapter 24, Part 4 of The D-Line and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Monsbru, Helsingfors, Finland. Chapter 24, The Retreat and Death of Julian, Part 4. The honour as well as intent of Julian forbade him to consume his tide under the impregnable walls of Ctesiphon, and as often as he defied the barbarians who defended the city to meet him on the open plain, they prudently replied that if he desired to exercise his valour, he might seek the army of the great king. He felt the insult, and he accepted the advice. Instead of confining his servile march to the banks of the Euphrates and Tigris, he resolved to imitate the adventurous spirit of Alexander, and boldly to advance into the inland provinces, till he forced his rival to contend with him, perhaps in the plains of Arbela, for the empire of Asia. The magnanimity of Julian was applauded and betrayed by the arts of a noble Persian, who, in the cause of his country, had generously submitted to act a part full of danger of falsehood and of shame. With a train of faithful followers, he deserted to the imperial camp, exposed in a special tale the injuries which he had sustained, exaggerated the cruelty of Sapor, the discontent of the people, and the weakness of the monarchy, and confidently offered himself as the hostage and guide of the Roman march. The most rational grounds of suspicion were urged without effect by the wisdom and experience of Hormistas, and the credulous Julian, receiving the traitor into his bosom, was persuaded to issue a hasty order, which, in the opinion of mankind, appeared to arraign his prudence and to endanger his safety. He destroyed In a single hour, the whole navy which had been transported about five hundred miles at so great an expense of toil, of treasure, and of blood. Twelve or at the most twenty-two small vessels were saved to accompany on carriages the march of the army and to form occasional bridges for the passage of the rivers. A supply of twenty days' provisions was reserved for the use of the soldiers, and the rest of the magazines, with a fleet of eleven hundred vessels which rode at anchor in the Tigris were abandoned to the flames by the absolute command of the emperor the christian bishops gregory and augustine insult the madness of the apostate who executed with his own hands the sentence of divine justice their authority of less weight perhaps in a military question is confirmed by the cool judgment of an experienced soldier who was himself spectator of the conflagration and who could not disapprove the reluctant murmurs of the troops yet there are not wanting some specious and perhaps solid reasons which might justify the resolution of julian the navigation of the euphrates never ascended above babylon nor that of the tigris above Opis. the distance of the last mentioned city from the roman camp was not very considerable and julian must soon have renounced the vain and impracticable attempt of forcing upward a great fleet against the stream of a rapid river which in several places was embarrassed by natural or artificial cataracts The power of sails and oars was insufficient. It became necessary to tow the ships against the current of the river. The strength of twenty thousand soldiers was exhausted in this tedious and servile labor. And if the Romans continued to march along the banks of the Tigris, they could only expect to return home without achieving any enterprise worthy of the genius or fortune of their leader. If, on the contrary, it was advisable to advance into the inland country, the destruction of the fleet and magazines was the only measure which could save that valuable price from the hands of the numerous and active troops which might suddenly be poured from the gates of Ctesipon. Had the arms of Julian been victorious, we should now admire the conduct, as well as the courage of a hero who, depriving his soldiers of the hopes of a retreat, left them only the alternative of death or conquest. The cumbersome train of artillery and wagons which retards the operations of a modern army were in a great measure unknown in the camps of the romans
1: yet in every
0: age the subsistence of sixty thousand men must have been one of the most important cares of a prudent general and that subsistence could only be drawn from his own or from the enemy's country had it been possible for julian to maintain a bridge of communication on the tigris and to preserve the conquered places of assyria A desolated province could not afford any large or regular supplies. In a season of the year when the lands were covered by the inundation of the Euphrates, and the unwholesome air was darkened with swarms of innumerable insects, the appearance of the hostile country was far more inviting. The extensive region that lies between the river Tigris and the mountains of Media was filled with villages and towns, and the fertile soil, for the most part, was in a very improved state of cultivation. Julian might expect that a conqueror, who possessed the two forcible instruments of persuasion, steel and gold, would easily procure a plentiful subsistence from the fears or avarice of the natives. But on the approach of the Romans, the rich and smiling prospect was instantly blasted. Wherever they moved, the inhabitants deserted the open villages and took shelter in the fortified towns, the cattle was driven away, the grass and ripe corn were consumed with fire, and as soon as the flames had subsided which interrupted the march of Julian, he beheld the melancholy face of a smoking and naked desert. This desperate but effectual method of defence can only be executed by the enthusiasm of a people who prefer their independence to their property, or by the rigour of an arbitrary government who consults the public safety without submitting to their inclinations the liberty of choice. On the present occasion the zeal and obedience of the Persians seconded the commands of support, and the emperor was soon reduced to the scanty stock of provisions which continually wasted in his hands. Before they were entirely consumed, he might still have reached the wealthy and unwarlike cities of Ecbatana or Susa by the effort of a rapid and well-directed march, but he was deprived of this last resource by his ignorance of the roads and by the perfidity of his guides. The Romans wandered several days in the country to the eastward of Baghdad. The Persian deserted, who artfully led them into despair, escaped from their resentment, and his followers, as soon as they were put to the torture, confessed the secret of the conspiracy. The visionary conquest of Hyrcania and India, which had so long amused, now tormented the mind of Julian. Conscious that his own imprudence was the cause of the public distress, he anxiously balanced the hopes of safety or success without obtaining a satisfactory answer, either from gods or men. At length, At length, as the only practicable measure, he embraced the resolution of directing his steps towards the banks of the Tigris, with the design of saving the army by a hasty march to the confines of Corduini, a fertile and friendly province which acknowledged the sovereignty of Rome. The desponding troops obeyed the signal of the retreat, only seventy days after they had passed the Chaboras, with the sanguine expectation of subverting the throne of Persia. As long as the Romans seemed to advance into the country, the march was observed and insulted from a distance by several bodies of persian cavalry who showing themselves sometimes in loose and sometimes in close order faintly skirmished with the advanced guards these detachments were however supported by a much greater force and the heads of the columns were no sooner pointed towards the tigris than a cloud of dust arose on the plain the romans who now aspired only to the permission of a safe and speedy retreat endeavoured to persuade themselves that this formidable appearance was occasioned by a troop of wild asses, or perhaps by the approach of some friendly Arabs. They halted, pitched their tents, fortified their camp, passed the whole night in continual alarms, and discovered, at the dawn of day, that they were surrounded by an army of Persians. This army, which might be considered only as the van of the barbarians, was soon followed by the main body of cuirassiers, archers, and elephants, commanded by Miranes, a general of rank and reputation. He was accompanied by two of the king's sons, and many of the principal satraps, and fame and expectation exaggerated the strength of the remaining powers, which slowly advanced under the conduct of Sapor himself. As the Romans continued their march, their long array, which was forced to bend or divide, according to the varieties of the ground, afforded frequent and favorable opportunities to their vigilant enemies. The Persians repeatedly charged with fury, they were repeatedly repulsed with firmness, and the action at Maronga, which almost deserved the name of a battle, was marked by a considerable loss of satraps and elephants, perhaps of equal value in the eyes of their monarch. These splendid advantages were not obtained without an adequate slaughter on the side of the Romans, several officers of distinction were either killed or wounded, and the emperor himself, who, on all occasions of danger, inspired and guided the valour of his troops, was obliged to expose his person and exert his abilities. The weight of offensive and defensive arms, which still constituted the strength and safety of the Romans, disabled them from making any long or effectual pursuit and as the horsemen of the east were trained to dart their javelins and shoot their arrows at full speed and in every possible direction, the cavalry of Persia was never more formidable than in the moment of a rapid and disorderly flight. But the most certain and irreparable loss of the Romans was that of time. The hardy veterans, accustomed to the cold climate of Gaul and Germany, fainted under the sultry heat of an Assyrian summer, their vigor was exhausted by the incessant repetition of march and combat, And the progress of the army was suspended by the precautions of a slow and dangerous retreat in the presence of an active enemy. Every day, every hour, as the supply diminished, the value and price of subsistence increased in the Roman camp. Julian, who always contented himself with such food as a hungry soldier would have disdained, distributed for the use of the troops the provisions of the imperial household and whatever could be spared from the sumpter horses of the tribunes and generals. But this feeble relief served only to aggravate the sense of the public distress, and the Romans began to entertain the most gloomy apprehensions that, before they could reach the frontiers of the empire, they should all perish, either by famine or by the sword of the barbarians. While Julian struggled with the almost insuperable difficulties of his situation, the silent hours of the night were still devoted to study and contemplation. Whenever he closed his eyes in short and interrupted slumbers, His mind was agitated with painful anxiety, nor can it be thought surprising that the genius of the empire should once more appear before him, covering with a funeral veil his head and his horn of abundance, and slowly retiring from the imperial tent. The monarch started from his couch, and stepping forth to refresh his wearied spirits with the coolness of the midnight air, he beheld a fiery meteor which shot toward the sky and suddenly vanished. Julian was convinced that he had seen the menacing countenance of the god of war, the council which he summoned of Tuscan Haruspices, unanimously pronounced that he should abstain from action. But on this occasion, necessity and reason were more prevalent than superstition, and the trumpets sounded at the break of day. The army marched through a hilly country, and the hills had been secretly occupied by the Persians. Julian led the van with the skill and attention of a consummate general, he was alarmed by the intelligence that his rear was suddenly attacked. The heat of the weather had tempted him to lay aside his cuirass, but he snatched the shield from one of his attendants, and hastened with sufficient reinforcement to the relief of the rear guard. A similar danger recalled the intrepid prince to the defence of the front, and as he galloped through the columns, the center of the left was attacked, and almost overpowered by the furious charge of the Persian cavalry and elephants. This huge body was soon defeated by the well-timed evolutions of the light infantry who aimed their weapons with dexterity and effect against the backs of the horsemen and the legs of the elephants. The barbarians fled, and Julian, who was foremost in every danger, animated the pursuit with his voice and gestures. His trembling guards, scattered and oppressed by the disorderly throng of friends and enemies, reminded their fearless sovereign that he was without armor, and conjured him to decline the fall of the impending ruin. As they exclaimed, a cloud of darts and arrows was discharged from the flying squadrons, and a javelin, after raising the skin of his arm, transpierced the ribs and fixed in the inferior part of the liver. Julian attempted to draw the deadly weapon from his side, but his fingers were cut by the sharpness of the steel, and he fell senseless from his horse. His guards flew to his relief, and the wounded emperor was gently raised from the ground and conveyed out of the tumult of the battle into an adjacent tent. The report of the melancholy event passed from rank to rank, but the grief of the Romans inspired them with invincible valour and the desire of revenge. The bloody and obstinate conflict was maintained by the two armies, till they were separated by the total darkness of the night. The Persians derived some honour from the advantage which they obtained against the left wing, where Anatolius, master of the offices, was slain, and the prefect Sallus very narrowly escaped, but the event of the day was adverse to the barbarians. They abandoned the field, the two generals, Miranes and Nohordates, fifty noble or satraps, and a multitude of their bravest soldiers, and the success of the Romans, if Julian had survived, might have been improved into a decisive and useful victory. The first words that Julian uttered, after his recovery from the fainting fit into which he had been thrown by loss of blood, were expressive of his martial spirit. He called for his horse and arms, and was impatient to rush into the battle, his remaining strength was exhausted by the painful effort, and the surgeons who examined his wound discovered the symptoms of approaching death. He employed the awful moments with the firm temper of a hero and a sage. The philosophers who had accompanied him in this fatal expedition compared the tent of Julian with the prison of Socrates, and the spectators whom duty or friendship or curiosity had assembled round his couch listened with respectful grief to the funeral oration of their dying emperor. Friends and fellow soldiers, the seasonable period of my departure is now arrived, and I discharge, with the cheerfulness of a ready debtor, the demands of nature. I have learned from philosophy how much the soul is more excellent than the body, and that the separation of the nobler substance should be the subject of joy rather than of affliction. I have learned from religion that an early death has always been the reward of piety, and I accept as a favour of the gods the mortal stroke that secures me from the danger of disgracing a character which has hitherto been supported by virtue and fortitude. I die without remorse, as I have lived without guilt. I am pleased to reflect on the innocence of my private life, and I can affirm with confidence that the supreme authority, that emanation of the divine power, has been preserved in my hands, pure and immaculate, detesting the corrupt and destructive maxims of despotism i have considered the happiness of the people as the end of government submitting my actions to the laws of prudence of justice and of moderation i have trusted the event to the care of providence peace was the object of my counsels as long as peace was consistent with the public welfare but when the imperious voice of my country summoned me to arms i exposed my person to the dangers of war with the clear foreknowledge which i had acquired from the art of divination that I was destined to fall by the sword. I now offer my tribute of gratitude to the eternal being, who has not suffered me to perish by the cruelty of a tyrant, by the secret dagger of conspiracy, or by the slow tortures of lingering disease. He has given me, in the midst of an honorable career, a splendid and glorious departure from this world, and I hold it equally absurd, equally base to solicit or to decline the stroke of fate. This much I have attempted to say, but my strength fails me, and I feel the approach of death, I shall cautiously refrain from any word that may tend to influence your suffrages in the election of an emperor. My choice might be imprudent or injudicious, and if it should not be ratified by the consent of the army, it might be fatal to the person whom I should recommend. I shall only, as a good citizen, express my hopes that the Romans may be blessed with the government of a virtuous sovereign." After this discourse, which Julian pronounced in a firm and gentle tone of voice, he distributed, by a military testament, the remains of his private fortune, and making some inquiry why Anatolius was not present, he understood from the answer of Sallust that Anatolius was killed, and bewailed, with amiable inconsistency, the loss of his friend. At the same time he reproved the immoderate grief of the spectators, and conjured them not to disgrace, by unmanly tears, the fate of a prince, who in a few moments would be united with heaven and with the stars. The spectators were silent, and Julian entered into a metaphysical argument with the philosophers Priscus and Maximus on the nature of the soul. The efforts which he made, of mind as well as body, most probably hastened his death. His wound began to bleed with fresh violence. His respiration was embarrassed by the swelling of the veins. He called for a draught of cold water, and as soon as he had drank it, expired without pain, About the hour of midnight. Such was the end of this extraordinary man, in the thirty second year of his age, after a reign of one year and about eight months from the death of Constantius. In his last moments he displayed, perhaps with some ostentation, the love of virtue and of fame which had been the ruling passions of his life. The triumph of Christianity and the calamities of the empire may, in some measure, be ascribed to Julian himself who had neglected to secure the future execution of his designs, by the timely and judicious nomination of an associate and successor. But the royal race of Constantius Chlorus was reduced to his own person, and if he entertained any serious thought of investing with the purple the most worthy among the Romans, he was diverted from his resolution by the difficulty of the choice, the jealousy of power, the fear of ingratitude, and the natural presumption of health, of youth, and of prosperity. His unexpected death left the empire without a master, and without an heir, in a state of perplexity and danger, which, in the space of fourscore years, had never been experienced since the election of Diocletian. In a government which had almost forgotten the distinction of pure and noble blood, the superiority of birth was of little moment, the claims of official rank were accidental and precarious, and the candidates who might aspire to ascend the vacant throne could be supported only by the consciousness of personal merit, or by the hopes of popular favour. But the situation of a famished army, encompassed on all sides by a host of barbarians, shortened the moments of grief and deliberation. In this scene of terror and distress, the body of the deceased prince, according to his own directions, was decently embalmed, and, at the dawn of day, the generals convened a military senate, at which the commanders of the regents and the officers both of cavalry and infantry were invited to assist three or four hours of the night had not passed away without some secret cabals and when the election of an emperor was proposed the spirit of faction began to agitate the assembly victor and arynteus collected the remains of the court of constantius the friends of julian attached themselves to the gallic chiefs the Galipus and nevita and the most fatal consequences might be apprehended from the discord of the two factions, so opposite in their character and interest, in their maxims of government, and perhaps in their religious principles. The superior virtues of Sallust could alone reconcile their divisions, and unite their suffrages, and the venerable prefect would immediately have been declared a successor of Julian, if he himself, with sincere and modest firmness, had not alleged his age and infirmities, so unequal to the weight of the diadem, the generals who were surprised and perplexed by his refusal showed some disposition to adopt the salutary advice of an inferior officer that they should act as they would have acted in the absence of the emperor that they should exert their abilities to extricate the army from the present distress and if they were fortunate enough to reach the confines of mesopotamia they should proceed with united and deliberate counsels in the election of a lawful sovereign while they debated a few voices saluted jovian who was no more than first of the domestics, with the names of Emperor and Augustus. The tumultuary acclamation was instantly repeated by the guards who surrounded the tent, and passed in a few minutes to the extremities of the line. The new prince, astonished with his own fortune, was hastily invested with the imperial ornaments, and received a note of fidelity from the generals, whose favour and protection he so lately solicited. The strongest recommendation of Jovian was the merit of his father, Count Veronian, who enjoyed in honourable retirement the fruit of his long services. In the obscure freedom of a private station, the son indulged his taste for wine and women, yet he supported with credit the character of a Christian and a soldier, without being conspicuous for any of the ambitious qualifications which excite the admiration and envy of mankind. The comely person of Jovian, his cheerful temper and familiar wit, had gained the affection of his fellow-soldiers, and the generals of both parties acquiesced in a popular election, which had not been conducted by the arts of their enemies. The pride of this unexpected elevation was moderated by the just apprehension that the same day might terminate the life and reign of the new emperor. The pressing voice of necessity was obeyed without delay, and the first orders issued by Jovian, a few hours after his predecessor had expired, were to prosecute a march, Which could alone extricate the Romans from their actual distress. End of chapter 24, part 4. Recording by Monsbru, Helsingfors, Finland.